So over the past few weeks, we have been dipping into the book of Exodus. And as I've mentioned a few times now, this has been uh, one of my favorite series that we've done up to this point because it's allowed us to get back into some Old Testament texts. If you're excited about the Old Testament, let me hear you. That's surprising. I want to say this about our community uh, because I found this to be odd. Not that I'm like a numbers person, but we did an event a couple weeks ago. It was called Beer and Hymns. We drank uh, some beer and we sang some hymns and people showed up, about 40 or so. We had a lecture on Old Testament source criticism in the Pentateuch and 25 of you showed up. I thought those numbers were crazy. You're, you're wondering why. Because I think more of you should like Old Testament source criticism than you do beer. No, I'm just kidding. I was actually surprised that there were so many of you at our lecture series last week. So uh, we're going to be doing that at the end of the month as well. And we would invite even more of you to join us for that. Um, but we have been going through the book of Exodus, and it's allowed me the opportunity to be a bit nerdy, but also to invite you guys into an old story that has uh, immediate relevance, I think, for our moment in history. Last week in particular, we saw Moses, who had met God in a theophanic vision at the burning bush. In other words, God showed up in the burning bush to, to speak with Moses, and he tasks him with the job to go back to Egypt, where Moses was from, and to bring his people out of Egyptian slavery and servitude. And in the text that we looked at last week, Moses has like five or so um, hesitations or objections to this call that God has tasked him with. He first says, who am I? Why would you ever want me to do something this, on this grand of a scale? Why would you choose me? And if I go, people won't even know who you are, and I don't really even know who you are, so please tell me what your name is. And if I go, then why would they think that I'm worth anything? You've got to give me some signs to do, God, if I'm going to do this. And, and why would you send me? Because I'm a person with um, heavy lips and heavy tongue, whatever that means. It's probably a speech impediment of some sort, or perhaps Moses' Egyptian was rusty at the time, but Moses was saying that he wasn't the one who could effectively communicate. And finally, at the end, he's like grasping at straws, and he just says, please, Lord, send somebody else. And God responds to each of these objections in Moses' life and continues to say, Moses, I, I will affirm all of these weaknesses that you have just said about yourself to be true, but yet I will still use you in the midst of those things. In fact, I will be with you. And Moses, that's all you need to know. I will be with you. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of this covenant promise that he has made with this people from long ago to make them numerous, to give them a land to help them to thrive and to be their God. And we've seen how this is, is going on. And the text that we're looking at this evening continues in this trend where Moses has just received this news from God. He has just put up five different objections. God has addressed each of those objections and says, ultimately, Moses, I will be with you. And we're going to pick up the text here in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. It says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, 
for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. The word of God for the people of God. So one scholar says this about our text this evening. He says, this passage is fraught with interpretive challenges that have perplexed interpreters for centuries. So we have our work cut out for us this evening. And I know that as we were reading through this passage, you, you spotted some of these interpretive challenges. Okay, I'll just point some of them out to you. Like in, in the beginning where it says, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. So our computers froze. And that's cool because we've just got a theme going tonight where... Uh, we don't know what we're doing. So thank you so much for being here. Can Tessa, can you go ahead and like try to shut that down or something? So in the beginning, I'll have to go old school tonight. So in the beginning of this passage, it says, um, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people. That's probably not the, the oddity of this text that you saw, but there are a couple of oddities in this text. The first one is... Um, Oh gosh, I really have to freestyle now that I'm trying to find my spot. In the Hebrew text, as I'm sure you all know, the word for Jethro is not actually Jethro. It's, it's Jether. So congratulations on that. Kelly is shaking her head like, what in the world is happening here? And Kelly, I don't know either. I... Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me go to my family in Egypt to see whether or not they are living. This is not what the Lord had told Moses. And perhaps you heard that as we were reading through this passage. What the Lord told Moses to do was in fact to go back and to, to free these people from Egyptian servitude. But when Moses is talking to his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he seems to distort the passage a little bit, to distort the message. And some people would say this is dem uh, demonstrating Moses' lack of faith where he doesn't quite believe that God will do the great things that he is wanting to do in and through Moses. Instead, he says, please let me go back to my family in Egypt to see whether or not they are living. Well, of course they are living because God has entrusted Moses to go back and to deliver them. 
Now it says in the text, now the Lord had said to Moses, and perhaps some of you picked up on this, and what's happening in, the, in this text here is that the NIV is making a translation decision for us where it says, now the Lord had said in the past, because for the Lord to say this, it would be out of sequence. We already know that the Lord has said to Moses to go back to Egypt, but what the NIV is doing here is putting this behind the passage that we're looking at now so that it's something that was in the past. Good gravy, Moses. <laughs> Um, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. This seems again to relinquish the Lord's power and what it is he's doing through Moses as if he needed these people to be dead in order for Moses to do the work that he is going to do. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his children. This is also odd because we only know up to this point only one son that Moses has by the name of Gershom. We don't know that Moses has other children, and we don't learn this until Exodus chapter 18, where we are finally introduced to Moses' other son named Eliezer. So why is this text also bringing up the fact that there are children and not just one son? And let's just face it, these aren't the things that you guys were looking at anyway, although I will say it's weird that it says Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and they started back to Egypt. We don't hear from these people again until chapter 18. And in chapter 18, it basically says that um, Moses is reuniting with his family after they leave Egypt. So the text is strange because here it seems as though they're going with Moses back to Egypt, but then later in the text it says that they were reuniting with Moses. But really the things that I think that we are looking at this evening, these other other minor, not at all troublesome interpretive challenges that we see in the text are the first one, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is one that has caused interpreters to have problems for centuries. And it's caused us perhaps to have problems as well because it, it shows us a picture of God who is kind of toying with Pharaoh. It says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It's a strange passage, and we wonder what it is that God is doing in the midst of this particular passage. However, I think the most uh, clear difficulty that we see in this passage is the whole God tries to kill him, it doesn't say who, kill him on the way to Egypt after telling him to go there in the first place. So Zipporah, Moses' foreign wife, circumcises Gershom and rubs the bloody foreskin on Moses' feet, which might actually be a euphemism for his genitalia. That thing. It's, a, it's an oddity in the passage. And, the, and the, best, the best I could do is just give you a stream of Kevin Hart memes because, and you can see how far it went because now this one has nothing to do with anything. It just says I hate people that say age is only a number because age is clearly a word. That's good comedy. It doesn't help us because this passage is really, really weird. Right? And there are some difficulties with the timing and the chronology and the different things that are going on there with Moses' family, but really when it comes down to it, it's these two things about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh and what that looks like and what that means for us. And also this very strange three verses in the middle of this passage where it says, on the way, God just mysteriously begins to try to kill Moses, or he's better translated, on the verge of killing Moses. So his wife moves into action where she circumcises her child and then rubs a bloody foreskin on Moses' genitals. I, I don't know any other way to say that, Kelly. I apologize, but this is the text that we're looking at this evening. Okay? Um, the hardening of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart, though, I do want to look at these two uh, in turn and hopefully make some sense of them, although I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I'm so off my game right now because of all of the stuff that's happening here. Say a prayer for me. But I'm also, there's nothing that I can say to make this stuff okay. This is where the Old Testament text is hard. 
And this is where sometimes when you guys come into this place, you expect me to stand up here and be all eloquent and to give you all the answers that you need to live a faithful and godly life. And that's not always the case, especially when you're preaching expositionally through the scriptures, you're dealt some cards that are pretty, pretty rough. I'm gonna do my best to try to shed some light on some of this stuff, but at the end of the day, um, one scholar says there's little that one can do to make this verse about God hardening Pharaoh's heart to say something different when we so desperately want it to say something different. We don't want God to be involved in this in any way, shape, or form. We solely want this to be Pharaoh's own willful decision where he says, you know what? Screw you, God. I'm gonna do what I am going to do here. But we've got this tension between God hardening Pharaoh's heart and we have this tension with Pharaoh being a person who is stubborn and strong-willed. I do think it's important for us to understand a little bit what this passage is actually about. It says, in the biblical conception, the psychological faculties are considered to be concentrated in the heart. Regarded as the seat of the intellectual, moral, and spiritual life of the individual, this organ is the determinant of behavior. So it's kind of giving us some information about what this heart is. So the hardening of the heart thus expresses a state of arrogant moral degeneracy. And I know parents in the room, this is a phrase that you use when your kids are going a little bit off the chain. You say, you are showing a state of arrogant moral degeneracy in your life right now, and you need to go sort that out in time out. But Pharaoh is unresponsive to reason and incapable of compassion. Pharaoh's personal culpability is beyond question. This from a Jewish scholar named Nahum Sarna writing on this passage. Another scholar says, in English, the heart suggests feelings. But in scripture, feelings are associated more with the stomach. It's interesting, like the bowels and the stomach is the, the feeling term. But the heart suggests thinking, taking up attitudes and making decisions. So strengthening or stiffening the heart suggests making up the mind with some firmness. So when we talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's as if Pharaoh is or becomes resolved or Pharaoh is or becomes stubborn. And it is important for us to note this, that this is not merely imposed on Pharaoh. It's actually, some of it is self-willed. This is the type of person that he is. In fact, when we dig into scripture and we see something a little bit beyond this, it will demonstrate the fact that it's not just God imposing this, but it is Pharaoh who is actually living out uh, of his own character. And I think it's also important for us to note what this might look like. And I found this uh, phrase to be helpful. John Golden Gay says, how will God go about stiffening or strengthening Pharaoh's resolve? I imagine it is not by manipulating the electrical circuits in Pharaoh's brain or by making uh, something analogous to hypnosis take place so as to make Pharaoh do something he is not inclined to do. This was not an imposition on the will where he's making Pharaoh become somebody completely different than who Pharaoh actually is. Throughout scripture, we see this hardening term used 20 times. 10 times it is Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and the other 10 times it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, it's important to realize that the first couple of terms when this shows up is God saying, I will harden his heart. So it seems as though God is the agent behind this, but still we're dealing with a very strong-willed, probably pretty arrogant, probably pretty stubborn type A type of leader who does not want any sort of opposition to him. And we see how this plays out here in this passage. It's also uh, disconcerting a bit when you dig into scripture and you see Exodus 3.19 that says, Moses, 
Pharaoh is not going to let these people go until he is led by a strong arm. Okay, so the text here in Exodus 3.19 says, unless Pharaoh is moved by a strong hand, he will not let these people go. And in Exodus 4.21, in our passage, it says, God says, I will make his heart strong. The same root there, hazak, is used for both of these things. So God is saying, Pharaoh won't move unless a strong hand moves him out, a hazak hand. But then God also says, I'm gonna hazak him. So there's this tension where the very thing that Pharaoh needs is the very thing that God has given him in the opposite direction of what it is that is happening. So God is demonstrating himself to be in complete control of this entire narrative. And some people would even suggest that Pharaoh in this text is God's plaything. I don't imagine that that sits well with you as you're here in this space. But as we see this play out in the next 10 plagues where God is doing these um, things to an Egyptian people. We see uh, Pharaoh becoming more and more resolved not to allow this people to leave. And God sort of just being in the midst of that and demonstrating his own power in this way that seems to go against the way that we would want God to demonstrate his power. And there's tension in the midst of God demonstrating his sovereignty in this text. As I was putting this stuff together, like this, this whole thing is difficult because we see a picture of God, at least in my best reading of the text, that isn't necessarily the most flattering, where God is involved in, yes, Pharaoh does have these sorts of inbuilt predispositions toward being stubborn and being strong-willed, but we also see God playing a role in that and how God is demonstrating his sovereignty over this whole thing. There's tension in it, but it also gets me thinking about the lives that we live and how we say that God is sovereign over all things. And yet we desperately pray for little children who are facing death by a ravenous disease. And we look at our own lives where we see the relationships that we have fought for for so many years and through so many tears and through so many clenched teeth. And we pray and God's sovereignty has not allowed any sort of reconciliation to take place. Or we make plans for ourselves and we, we kind of map out our lives and we think that everything's going in this direction and then something happens to completely derail us. And there's tension in how God demonstrates his sovereignty in the lives that we live and the trust that we are supposed to place in him. And what we see through this story in Exodus is, yes, God is in control. Yes, God is exerting his will in this. And yes, God is working with people in this. But there's so much tension there. And I know that for us, as we sit here, sometimes we feel that tension. And if I had to put my finger on the pulse of the one thing that makes us want to walk away from the faith or even just run away from the faith, it's that we prayed these prayers. God seemingly did not hear them or did not answer them in the way that we wanted them to. And so we have to come to terms with that. And for some of us, we just cannot come to terms with that. And again, what we see here in this passage is, yes, God is sovereign, but in our own lives, that doesn't necessarily always work out in the ways that we think or feel or hope. So what is it that we do with this weird circumcision text? Okay, this is a, an odd juxtaposition, but this story comes out of nowhere. Before we get there, I think it's important for us to back up and to look at uh, some of this passage. 
It says in the immediately preceding verse before they're on, this, uh, on the way and God shows up to try to kill Moses. It says, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship or serve me. I want to pause there for a second. Because in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the mess, in this very ancient story, we see a God who is completely and utterly captivated by this people. So much so that he is in a familial relationship with them where they are his firstborn son and he will go to great lengths to care for them and provide for them and to rescue them. And as we see Israel leaving their servitude in Egypt, it's not as though they're becoming free from um, their captors. This is a terrible way of phrasing it, but here we see that they're not serving Egypt anymore, but they're going out so that they can serve God. It's as if their master is, is switching and now these people are worshiping God and serving God and they're enacting their lives in this familial relationship with God. Israel is my firstborn son. I love them. I care about them. But then this text, it just takes a hard right and it says, but you, Pharaoh, you refuse to let my kids go. So now I will kill your firstborn son. And right again, we're back into the, this doesn't feel right. And I don't like where this text is going. But what we're seeing here is this is leading us up to the end of the story where Pharaoh, based on his own disposition and God's hardening of his heart, he's not letting Israel go. And what is going to culminate here is the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn and the firstborn of all throughout Egypt. This is not an easy passage and we're, we're seeing the hard juxtaposition between the love of God and the care and concern for God's own people and the, recal the recalcitrance of the Egyptians not to heed what God is, is doing. So we have this relationship here and how this story in the beginning is looking forward to the end of the plagues and this bridegroom of blood stuff is also looking forward to something. Now this is what we know from this passage. There's three things that we know about this passage. First, God was on the verge of killing someone. It was probably Moses. We do not know why. It's important at least to, to think about how we're terming this because it's not as though God was trying to kill Moses and failing, but God was simply on the verge of killing someone, although that doesn't really make it much better, does it? The second thing that we know is Zipporah, Moses' wife, intercedes for Moses. And this is another woman in the early chapters of the book of Exodus that is coming to the rescue of this guy, Moses. First it was the midwives, then it was Moses' mom, then it was Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister was also involved, and now Moses' own wife is showing up and rescuing him. We should also remember where Zipporah comes from. Her dad is a priest, so what some people have thought is that as she circumcises her kid and then does the rest of that weird thing, that there's some kind of priestly enactment that's happening here, perhaps even an incantation that she is reciting these things to make God not want to kill Moses anymore. One scholar says she clearly knows what to do and she does it expertly. There's not much more that we can say about that, although I do want to give a shout out to the ladies in the room again, although I wouldn't necessarily think that there's direct application from this passage, but it is cool to see again in the midst of a patriarchal text that you guys are taking ownership of what's going on and helping to further this story in a way that does not get celebrated on most Sundays. 
She clearly knows what to do and she does it expertly. And what we know from this text is that it worked. We don't really know why. One scholar says, Moses can argue and pout and whine and hold his breath about going to Egypt and God will deal patiently with him. But circumcision is really another matter. Failure to circumcise meets with swift punishment in the Old Testament. As even as I read this, we see that coming to pass in this passage, but then there's a time when that doesn't happen anymore. Specifically in the New Testament when circumcision is not a thing. Now this was the sign and the seal of the covenant in the Old Testament for God's covenant people. They had to be circumcised so that they could see physically, literally, for the men in the room, they could see physically and literally the signs of the covenant and the entrance into this promise that they had with with God. And this is also looking forward to something that's going to happen here as the uh, Israelites are leaving Egypt. Because as they're celebrating this Passover, this first time when, when God is not killing these firstborn, they're to circumcise themselves, and no one who is not circumcised can observe the Passover. This is looking forward to this time when this is happening. Now in the rest of the story, we see Moses and Aaron and they go to the Israelites and they perform their signs and the Israelites believe what's going on here. And I do have some, some thoughts for us on this passage. First, I think it's important to understand even in the midst of the tension and even in the midst of the difficulty and even in the midst of all of the violence in this story, God's call to Israel as his firstborn son. This is picked up in the New Testament when Jesus shows up. And one of the first things that Jesus does is he gets baptized. And you remember the scene perhaps as Jesus is coming up from the water, the heavens rip open, a dove descends, and you hear the voice of God say, you are my son. In you, Jesus, I am well pleased. There's this familial relationship between Jesus and God. But what's even more exciting about that, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with Israel in the Old Testament as the firstborn son or Jesus as the son of God who is being baptized and identified as God's own. It says in the book of John that for anyone who receives him, we have been given the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. I don't want that to be missed this evening and I don't want us to forget that the opportunity that we have to be in deep relationship with God, even in the midst of our own brokenness, even in the midst of our own failures, even in the midst of our own sinfulness, even in the midst of our own recalcitrance, even in the midst of our own strong-willedness and arrogance and pride, even in the midst of our own hard-heartedness, God still says, I want you. And all of this is available through what Jesus has done for you. This story is looking forward not just to the exodus and removal of the Israelites from servitude. It's looking forward to the cross and the empty tomb and the life and the hope and the freedom that is available in Jesus. And I'm hopeful that we do not forget that. I also can't help but read any story in the Old Testament that has to do with circumcision and not think about the Gentiles. As we look back on the Old Testament, this was the sign and the seal of this old covenant, that they would go through this ancient ritual that was not unique to Israel, but this was something that was meaningful for them, that they would mark their own bodies as a sign and symbol that they were in the family of God. 
and that without that sign, they could not fully participate in the life of the community, at least for the men. And I know that there's some underlying feminist things that we should discuss at some other point, but what I hear from this passage is how important this was in the Old Testament and how this was like the thing that identified it. But then as we think about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and how that changes absolutely everything on the face of the earth, and we meet Paul, who's a missionary to all these people, and Paul's biggest battle with other Christians was, do we need to be circumcised? There was a good pile of Jewish Christians that would say, absolutely, because we gotta keep holding on to this law. We have to keep observing this law. We have to keep having the same sign and seal. But we have Paul, who was operating in something completely different, who said, no, God is doing a new thing. And we need to understand that. And we need to recognize that. And we need to celebrate that. And as we tell that story, it makes me wonder, just wonder, if there are not new things that are happening for us here and now where God is doing something completely radically different that we could not have expected and perhaps we might look a bit more like those Jewish Christians that say, no, 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 this is the way that it must be but God is over here and drawing us into something different. We see the story of circumcision, how important it was. It was. It was that until it wasn't anymore. And God was overseeing that and in the midst of that and inviting so many people into this family. It wasn't just about Jews anymore. It was about Jews and Gentiles, sinners. And this is where we enter into the story. And sometimes we forget that because as we look back to Moses, we think, oh, Moses is one of my own, but he's not. And Jesus has allowed us to become part of this story. Now, admittedly, those concerns are far afield from a weird text about circumcision in the Old Testament. But I'm hopeful that even as we begin to dig back into this ancient text, to see all of the oddities that it has in its context, that we can begin to think about what God is doing in our midst today through Christ. And I'm hopeful that as we sit here, we are not settling and we are not stagnant, but we are allowing God to do a new work within our community as we follow the Spirit through prayer and petition, and as we remain open to this radical move of God in our own community here.